0: Church, good morning welcome back. Glad that you guys are here. It's nice to see what I'm assuming are your smiling faces behind those masks. And uh, thrilled that you guys are here with us. And for those of us who are joining on the live stream, uh, we, we love that you are here with us this morning as well, too, and uh, really thankful to be together. We um, are actually going to start kind of a two-week intro kind of ramp up to our study in the book of John, which will go on for quite a few weeks. We'll be in that book uh, really pretty much for the rest of the year and, and into next year as well as two. But So the next two weeks, we're using as kind of a launch point uh, to get into the book of john and talk about just kind of john's intention with what he wrote but let me pray first uh and then we'll get into the word and we'll see if i still know how to do this um father in heaven we love you god there's nothing we more we need more right now than you so holy spirit would you come god we need to hear from you we need your words because they're life to us And God, more than just hearing, we need you to move in our hearts and in our minds, God, that you would bring just radical transformation. God, I'm praying that you'd even bring salvation this morning. And God, whether it's in this room or online, um, God, would you speak to us? God, would you move us? God, would you stir up our affection for you? God, would the things of this world just be really, really dim? in the light of your glory, and in the light of your grace towards us. Jesus, we love you. That's in your name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, open to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and we are going to start this morning with hearing from John, the author of this gospel, the gospel account of the life of Jesus. Um, we're going to hear from him his purpose and his Intention, And that's really where we'll be the next two weeks, kind of looking at this theological intention and purpose of what John wants to say to us about Jesus. And in John chapter 20, verse 30, John makes it very clear as to why he wrote this and to what he wants us to glean from it or get from it or really what he wants it to do to us. He says this in John chapter 20, verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, his followers, which are not recorded. In this book, in his writing, but these are written that you may believe. He said, This is why I wrote these things down that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's pretty straightforward with his intentions, and he says, I want you to believe. And this book is written so that maybe first time faith is planted, but also so if faith that is planted would continue to grow and be formed in you. And when he writes what he writes here, he's not only summarizing this book, but he's really summarizing his theology or his thoughts about God, answering the question, who is Jesus? And he makes it very plain. He says he is the Messiah, He's the chosen one. He's the sent one, the savior king. He is the very son of God. Now, a lot of scholars believe that John's not primarily writing to Christians because they would have already had that answer. They would have already known that answer. Um, Most scholars believe that he's writing to those who are unconverted, particularly unconverted Jews. But we're going to see as we work through John in the the months and and days to come, uh, that John's gospel account is incredibly important for the church as well as those who are not yet followers of Jesus. And John's purpose in writing is not just simply academic. He's writing so that you would have a personal relationship with Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through that relationship, you would experience a kind of new creation in your life and in your heart, and that you would be a part of God working out that new creation in the world. In fact, as we get into John, we're going to see a lot of parallels between the book of Genesis and what John is writing. And John says, I've recorded these signs, I've recorded these miracles that we're going to see that all culminate in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus to show you who he is so that he would fill you up and overflow out of you. John says, I want you to know the person of Jesus Christ and believe in him. A.W. Tozer in a book that he's written about John says this, he says, of all the books of the Bible, none presents Christ as supremely as the gospel of John. He says, I believe the reason it captures our heart and mind so is because of John's approach. Whereas the Apostle Paul presents Christ in a theological setting, John uses the mystical setting. In doing so, John does not disregard theology, for there's plenty of, it in, for there's plenty of theology in his gospel. Rather, he uses theology as a ladder to climb the heights of Christ's nature. And now some may recoil at my use of the word mystical, but I believe it accurately describes the personality and the temperament of the Apostle John. Mystical, as employed in the Gospel of John, simply refers to the cultivation of deep appreciation of the unique nature of Christ and our fascination with Him. John is pushing us and encouraging us to ascend into the rarefied atmosphere of experiencing God in the wonderment of his everlastingness. One of the highlights of quarantine for me um, was a documentary that came out about Michael Jordan called The Last Dance. And... uh, as a kid who grew up kind of in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, this was just took me back to so many moments of watching Michael and his battle with, with the Pistons and even when they played the Suns. Sorry about that, Suns fans. Um, but there was a moment in this documentary that recalled this commercial that I just loved as a kid. It was a Gatorade commercial. Um, and the tagline for the commercial was, Be Like Mike. And there was this super catchy song that went to That was sometimes I dream that he is me. You got to see, that's how I dream to be. I dream I move, I dream I groove like Mike. If I could be like Mike, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be like Mike. (laughs) And that kind of like attitude, that kind of mentality, I think is what John's trying to stir up. He's saying, like, he's saying, like Christ, if you could be like Christ. This is very cheesy. Someone will make a T-shirt out of that. There was a, a pastor that I listened to when I was on vacation, and he used this phrase, and he kind of posed this question to his congregation. And I, and I just really liked that I've been kind of sitting in it. But he says, how much of the Jesus stuff is in you. And when he's saying he's talking about the Jesus stuff, he's talking about the characteristics of Jesus in my life, in my discipleship, my following, my spiritual formation. How much of the Jesus stuff is present in my life? When we went through the series on that book, Gentle and Lowly, that was really at the heart of what we were trying to cultivate, not only in our church, but in ourselves as well too. We look at the person of Jesus, he's gentle, he's lonely, his heart towards sinners and sufferings. And when our prayer was, God, would you do that in us? Would you do that in our church? Would we be like Christ in that way? Would we be formed in that way? The Apostle Paul, when he's talking to the church, he uses this phrase, Like he says that there's these pains of childbirth until Christ is formed within you. He has this agonizing vision of Jesus being formed in the life of his church. And in fact, in Romans chapter eight, he makes this amazing sentence, this reality that that we've been chosen by God to become like Jesus. And in our lives as followers of Jesus, this is our vision that Christ would be formed in us so that the Jesus stuff would be in us and flow out of us and that our belief, what John's calling us to here in his gospel, would not just be this mental ascent, that it wouldn't just be lip service, but, but, but that it would be in our bones, that it would ooze out of us. Jesus is... He doesn't call us to mimic him. Like when I would play basketball in the early 90s as a, as a kid, uh, I, would ne- I would always have my tongue hanging out because that's what Michael Jordan did. Remarkably, it didn't help my game at all. Um, But I was mimicking him. And what Jesus is not calling us is to mimic uh, him, but to manifest him. Meaning have him show up and show off in our life. Becoming like Christ is ultimately what God does in us, not what we do. So John's not calling us to more like activity. Uh, He's calling us to submit to the will of God in our lives that Christ would be formed in us. And our job is to die to ourselves. God's job is to transform us into the likeness of Christ. And John's going to show us in his gospel account that that leads to new life and a life transformed into the image of Jesus. There's three places um, that I think John's going to call us into more belief uh, in his gospel. We're going to kind of set the table for the gospel of John with these three things this morning. They are the miracles of Jesus... The message of Jesus and then the mercy of Jesus. The miracles of Jesus, the message of Jesus, and the mercy of Jesus. There are seven miracles that are highlighted in the book of John. These are not all the miracles of Jesus, and they're not even all the miracles in the book of John, but they all are meant to persuade the readers that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that they must believe in him to be saved. In John chapter 2, we see Jesus who turns water into wine. In John chapter 4, he heals the official son. In John chapter 5, there's a healing of a paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. Uh, And and, in John chapter 6, there's the feeding of the multitudes. In that same chapter, Jesus walks on water. In John chapter 9, there's a healing of a man who's blind from birth. In John chapter 11, his friend Lazarus, who has died, Jesus raises him from the dead. And then the eighth sign would be the resurrection of Jesus, showing that the new covenant has begun and it would complete um, the, the kind of seven days of old creation and the resurrection of Jesus brings in this new be- beginning and here's what we need to know about the ministry of Jesus. And we're going to see this as we go deeper and deeper into John, that these miracles are not peripheral. They were not just kind of like sideshow acts that Jesus would do in front of people to keep them interested in what he was saying. They were central to the ministry of Jesus and his even his own testimony about himself. And we see in the gospels that Jesus is using these miracles to confirm his, deity, Um, but a lot of times they're just acts of mercy towards people. They're deliverance from from the evil one. Uh, They're they're helping people in in physical ways and social ways. When Peter does a summary of the ministry of Jesus in Acts 10, he says that this God uh, anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, and he went about doing good and healing all those under the power of the evil one because God was with him. And so when he's summarizing this ministry of Jesus, he says it comes down to Jesus was doing good, he was healing, he was delivering all under the power of the evil one. So these miraculous things that Jesus are doing are central to the ministry uh, of who Jesus is. And so he says in John chapter 14, listen what he says, Jesus says in John chapter 14. He says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. And so whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, Jesus says, I will do it. What is remarkable to me is how uncomfortable this Bible verse (laughs) makes Bible people feel. Because we read that and we're like, wow, okay. I mean, I know he said that, but he didn't really mean what he said. Or when he said it, he actually meant that for a particular group of people at a particular time. and, And there's a special kind of category for what he was saying. And so we really dilute not only the sayings and the promises of Jesus, but the person of Jesus himself. Because we're just really not comfortable when Jesus starts to talk like this. C.S. Lewis says, the mind that asks for a non-miraculous Christianity is a mind that is in process of relapsing from Christianity and into mere religion. So when we talk about belief in the miracles of Jesus, we're really uncomfortable with that, and I think there's a couple reasons why. I think one of the reasons is why is that some of us, we're disappointed with God. If we're really honest, some of us, we could say, you know, I had a season, and maybe it was when you were younger, or maybe when your faith was very fresh and new, where you just felt like God was very vibrant, and God was all over you, and there really was, like, nothing that God could not do in your life, that nothing was impossible with God. You believed that, you really felt that, you experienced that, and you really leaned into that. But then life started to happen, and certain things that you prayed for didn't Happen the way that you thought that they were going to happen or the way that you wanted them to happen. You prayed for healing, but there were still death. You prayed for reconciliation, but there was still a divorce. You prayed for provision, but you still lost your job and your income. And some people, when that stuff happens and you feel like God's let you down, you'll walk away from the faith. But most of us that won't happen. But what we'll do is we'll create a God that doesn't have any power, and we'll just carry around with us that disappointing version of that God. And if that's you, we have to be honest and we have to deal with that disappointment. We think, we think we're not allowed to be disappointed with God. But in the scriptures, God shows us a man named John the Baptist who has that moment. And John the Baptist, um, things start out for him great. In fact, the scripture says that he received the Holy Spirit in the womb. So if you were to ask John, hey, when did you become a Christian? He's like, well, actually, when I was in the womb, I got the Holy Ghost. I don't. I don't know what to tell you, and then he and then when John starts his ministry, I mean it's amazing. He's preaching, he's baptizing, he's leading a revival in the middle of, of, of nowhere. And then there's this moment where John speaks truth to power, and he becomes arrested and thrown in jail for it. And while he's sitting in that cell, John begins to have some doubts, he begins disappointment, kind of sets in, and he sends his followers to Jesus and uh, to say, "Hey, uh, are you are you the real deal?" I mean, because I'm. I'm in, I'm in prison. Is this, is this legit or no? And listen to what Jesus says to him. He says, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. And those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And what Jesus is saying to John and to you and to me who are disappointed, and saying, Look, the kingdom of God is breaking out. Don't lose heart on account of me. Because sometimes it seems like the kingdom of God breaks out all around us, even though it might not be working for us in a particular way personally. The power of God in our lives is not for us to get whatever we want whenever we want it. It's designed to bless other people. It's primarily designed for others. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for that or wanting that for yourself. But it just seems that our tendency is to spoil ourselves rather than steward it for the good of others. So I think one of the reasons we really struggle to believe the miraculous about Jesus is because of our disappointment in God. Another reason, I think, is because um, of our cynicism or our sophistication. Now, we all have a story or someone else's story or some kind of fringe, outlier, weird event where God moved, but it just doesn't really fit neatly in our box, and so we just kind of discount it. And to be fair, to be fair, there are plenty of people or churches or movements that warrant that level of discernment or criticism. We should be testing and discerning and guided by the Word of God and the Spirit of God, But oftentimes, it's our own personal level of comfort with spiritual things that becomes the measuring tool by which the God of the universe gets to make His power known in the world. And because we're not comfortable with it, we get rigid and create rules on what God can and cannot do. And the thing about the Bible, if we read the Bible, is that it uh, it challenges our comfortability with that over and over and over again. In the Bible, in Luke chapter 8, there's this woman, she has has this issue of blood, so she's been bleeding her whole life. She spent all of her living on physicians to try to figure it out. She could not be healed. She hears about this man, Jesus, who's a miracle worker, and she kind of sneaks into the crowd. She doesn't say anything, and she kind of sneaks through the crowd up to Jesus. She's like this spiritual kleptomaniac, and she just reaches and she touches Jesus. There's no Bible verse for that. There's no law. In fact, most scholars just think this is just a crazy superstition that she has. There's no real rationale for it, and Jesus says, who touched me? Because power went out from me. Jesus says, who has the kind of faith that obtained my power without even asking for it? Jesus is amazed at her faith. He's on the way to do another miracle, and she just breaks in with desperation, and God honors it. In Luke chapter 7, there's a centurion, and he goes to Jesus, and he says, look, I know how authority works. He's like, my servant needs healing, and I know you don't even have to go there. You don't even have to show up. You can just say the word right now, Jesus, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus is like, whoa, my people don't even have that kind of faith. You're going to get what you need. And then there's the scene in the, in the Bible. Um, this was always a favorite scene. When, we, when I was growing up in church, we used to have high attendance Sundays. And this was always the story that they would tell on high attendance Sundays where a couple of guys, they had a friend who was paralyzed and they needed to get him into the meeting where Jesus was. But the room was so packed, they couldn't get him in. So they cut a hole in the roof. And they lower this man down. And Jesus, because of the faith of his friends, heals this man. And it's amazing that someone else's faith brings healing to this man. And so the Bible just disrupts these neat boxes that we have on how God can and cannot work. And in general, these kind of things don't really happen in our culture. And in the ministry of Jesus, it seems that when miracles happened the most, it wasn't just when an individual had faith, but when there was a community that was together hungry for a move of God. And that's what John is going to cultivate in us. I'm praying that we want to see God do in us as we journey through this book. God, would you cultivate in us a hunger an insatiable hunger for your power and for your presence in our lives, for the good of the world and for the fame and the renown of Jesus. Let there be more of the Jesus stuff. Let there be more of the ministry of Jesus, the miraculous ministry of Jesus in our lives. We need to, pe- we need to be a people who say, Jesus, do the miracle stuff in me, in us, for the good of the world, for your renown and for your fame. So First John wants us to believe in the miraculous of Jesus and who he is and what he does. And the second thing we need to believe about Jesus is his message. Jesus basically has two kind of great themes to his ministry. The first is the message of the kingdom of God. Jesus brought this message that the kingdom of God was at hand and repent and believe this good news about the king. In John chapter 3, we're going to see Jesus have an interaction with this man named Nicodemus and he's going to tell him, look, this kingdom is accessed through new birth by the Spirit of God. At the end of his life, Jesus is going to say the gospel of the kingdom will be preached. And it's not just the gospel of personal salvation, although that's certainly significant, but it's an announcement that a king is here and that his rule and his reign is increasing among the nations. That's the message of the kingdom. And when Jesus is teaching this to the Jewish people, they reject this. They really don't have a grid for this because they thought that the Messiah would come with power, that he would be like a military kind of warrior poet like David, and that he would set up Jerusalem as like kind of the center capital of the the world, that it would be like this kind of military overthrowing the, the, the government. They didn't understand that what Jesus was talking about was this kingdom that was coming in seed form. It was coming in small, not by coercion or power certainly not military might but that would start small and grow in love and that it would spread throughout the world through generations and it's important for us that just as the message of the kingdom of god was jesus message that, that the message that the gospel of the kingdom is our central message and not the gospel of the current nation that we live in because if if that's our gospel We will shrink the work that God is wanting to do in the world, and we will lose our voice when we talk only about earthly kingdoms and not about God's heavenly kingdom. The message of the kingdom was central to Jesus, is central to Jesus, and it has to be central to us. We have to reclaim this. We have to be kingdom people marked by the presence and the power of God living in the way of Jesus for the good of our neighbors and our world. So the first part of the message of Jesus was the kingdom of God God is here. The second part of the message of Jesus is the message of Jesus himself. And this is what John wants you to believe. I want you to believe in the person of Jesus himself. The Apostle Paul says we don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ as Lord and we preach ourselves as we're servants for that cause and for his sake. So what message are you preaching with your life? If someone were to take an inventory of all the outflow of your life, the things you type, the things you say, the things you write, what, is the, what are you preaching with your life? Because it needs to be the message of Jesus if you are a Jesus follower. And, and, and Jesus would make, he made extraordinary claims. In fact, there's, there's, there's seven kind of messianic claims in the book of John where he is essentially saying, I am what you need most in your, in your life. Are you hungry? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Do you need sight? He says, I am the light of the world. He he spoke that at the, at the Feast of Lights when he healed a blind man. Do you need access to God? He says, I am the gate, I am the door. Do you need care and provision? He says, I am the good shepherd. Do you need care and provision? That word shepherd, it has in its root from Jehovah, Jireh, God sees to it, God will provide. God says, I am the shepherd, I am the Jireh who sees To it for you. Do you need rescue from death? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the true vine. And what we're praying for in John as we work through it is that we'd be so saturated and soaked in the message of Jesus and who he is that our sights are set squarely on him. That all the peripheral messages, that all the things that we are inundated in day in and day out would have no space. That we would be so laser focused on who Jesus is and his his message of who he is and his kingdom. This is why the church doesn't experience the power of God. Because we let all these peripheral influences creep in and so those become our lenses and our lexicons. And we meditate on those things and we reference the person of Jesus. And I want to be one of those people where Jesus is front and center in my mindset and my motivation and my conversations to where it's almost annoying because every time you're talking about something that's going up, that reminds me of of something that Jesus said. That reminds me of something I I watched Jesus do in the scriptures. And so he's always, always front and center in our conversation and our mind. And so when people encounter us, whether in person or digitally, I guess now, they encounter Jesus and his message that the kingdom of God is here and that he is the king of the kingdom. So finally, we, we need to be a people who believe in the miracles of Jesus. John wants us to believe. John wants us to believe the message of Jesus and let it be in our mouths. And We need to display the mercy of Jesus. We need a deep belief in the mercy of Jesus. Now, historically, Christians seem to gravitate towards the despised and the weak, uh, they just stubbornly insisted on caring for the poor and the broken. In fact, the first 300 years of the church exploded in influence and, and in size because of the way that they loved, not because of any of their large indoor gatherings. And if you look through the ministry of Jesus, he seemed to have a bias towards mercy and towards those who were in need whether it was a physical need or social care, or demonic oppression, whenever Jesus saw something wrong, he just move, was moved to act upon it. In fact, when Jesus starts his ministry, he kind of reads this manifesto out of Luke chapter 4. Listen to what he says. The, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he rolled, unrolled it, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say to them, Today, the scripture, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So he starts off his ministry of reading. He said, This is what I'm all about. And then as you look through the Gospels, it's just, he just lives it out. He proves what he stated about himself. He's moved with compassion at the crowds. There's the story of the widow of Nain where Jesus just interrupts this funeral procession because his heart is just gravitating towards the suffering and the brokenhearted. And for Jesus, he's not just trying to wow the crowd. He, just, he sees a need. He sees this widow who lost her son. And his heart goes out. And his compassion brings forth resurrection power. You want to tap into the resurrection power of Jesus? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes, you do. Compassion draws it out. There's another place where Jesus lets the sinful woman anoint him and the religious leaders are standing around and they're thinking to himself, they're like, if you had any idea what kind of woman this was, you would not be anywhere near her. And Jesus says, if you knew what kind of God I am, you'd have a greater appreciation for grace and mercy and salvation. There's the woman in John 8. We're going to see her story. She's caught in adultery. Condemnation is rightly on her. And Jesus turns this space into a place of restoration and salvation. Jesus is constantly moved by compassion and mercy. And that word compassion, you've heard Tyler say this and teach on this several, several times. But this word compassion, it means the, the bowels. It's talking about the heart, the kidneys, the entrails, the innards of mercy. In fact, the New Testament writers, they, they basically have to make this word up. Because they have no other way to explain what Jesus is doing, what's motivating him, what's moving him. There's this mercy that's internal, that's deep in the guts of who Jesus is, and it would come out as restoration and compassion for people. And that should be so eye-opening to us. And I hope it is as we journey through John together because most of us were way too busy in our own lives or our own stories to let the kingdom of God break in in these ways. Because we live with such speed and such intensity and now it's such anxiety that we rob ourselves of any margin or any place where we can find Jesus. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, you wanna find me? Here's where I am. I have hidden myself amongst the broken in the world. And when you show mercy to the least of these, he says, you actually do it to me. He's like, when you give a cup of water, when you give a visit, when you give a kind word, when you see the marginalized and act on their behalf, move towards the least of these where everybody else moves away. Jesus says, that's when you see me. That's when you minister to him. I was looking at this yesterday and I just thought, what if we actually took that serious? What if that was really true? What if we could really see Jesus? And I just thought, I'm going to ask the church, who here wants to see Jesus? Like the, the Jesus we sing about and read about, and we say he's changed our life, and his sacrifice is everything, and what if you said, well, we can see him, would you want to see him? Would you want to minister to Jesus? What a radical, radical thought that is. You could actually minister to Jesus. He says, you want to know how to do that? Minister to the poor, to the broken, to the outcast, to the hurting, to the prisoner. And I can't just help but wonder what it would be like if Redemption Church was known not just for our morality, which is important, but for our mercy. But you have to create space for it because mercy is exhausting. Mercy leads to death. And we have to be people of hearts big enough to respond to it. At this church, one of the things I love is that we believe that the Word of God is so important. And, and preaching has an extremely high value in our culture here. It's one of the reasons that we still have a, a pulpit. Now, there's nothing magical about a pulpit. You don't have to have one, but it's one of the reasons that we have it. And we love this book, we love the Bible, but the Bible is designed to bring you into the presence of God. It's not an end to itself. The book is amazing, but the book is designed to get you to a person, the person of Jesus. And the kingdom of God does not just exist in the pulpit. The kingdom of God, according to God, is amongst the poor and the broken and the needy. And that's where Jesus has hidden himself in our world. There's one place that I think John's really going to drive us to, and I'm... Somewhat looking forward to it, somewhat not. But John, as we go through it, and he calls us to believe, he's going to expose us. He's going to expose us as either a deist or a disciple. John's going to say, are you a deist? And deism is a worldview that says, okay, God, there is God that's out there. And he kind of set all this stuff up he kind of set it all in motion and he created, you know, some kind of rules of the road. He created some parameters. He created some guidelines and guardrails and things that he wants us. But he mostly just kind of set it in motion and now we just have to kind of live in those parameters, those things that he's kind of called us to do. That's what a deist believe, But a disciple is way different. And if you look at what Jesus did with his disciples and what he taught, and you look at the invitations that Jesus extended to them, and if you look through the history at people who took Jesus seriously on his offer to become like him, and you realize that there's two totally different ways of being. That deists and disciples are two totally different things. And if someone in your life had those two perspectives and they watched you or they watched me or they watched our church, they watched our lives, would they have enough evidence to convict us of being disciples? Or would they say, well, they're just deists. It's not enough that we're known by how much we know. John is saying, look, the point is that you believe. Believe that Jesus is Lord over all. That your life orbits around his loving rule and reign and that your life looks like his because he's your source of life. So is the miraculous presence of God seen in your life? Is your life true to the message of who Jesus is and what He was about? Are you preaching the kingdom of God in your life? Is Jesus good news in your neighborhood, in your community, with the people that you interact with online? Is Jesus good news to them? With the people that you meet, is Jesus good news? Are you able to be interrupted with compassion for others? Or are you too distracted, too self-focused, and too self-justifying on why you can pass up on an opportunity to love? Are these things happening because you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? In the everyday stuff, would people say they believe in Jesus? And I can just tell because it's overflowing out of them. They're gentle, they're kind, they're caring, they're compassionate, they're humble, they're patient, they're self-controlled. And I know we're all different places in our journey with Jesus, whether you're in this room or you're watching online and all. No, we kind of gravitate towards these certain things. So I start to talk about the miraculous and you're like, yes, show me the miracle stuff. Show me the power stuff of God. Or we talk about the message and you're like, that's it. Just preach the gospel, preach the gospel, preach the gospel. Or there's the mercy part and you're like, yes, why aren't we doing more to help people? And I know that we all kind of lean towards one of those things, but the reality is and the truth is what we see in Jesus and what we'll see in Jesus as we journey through John together is that we need all of those things together because that's what disciples who do kingdom stuff in their community and in their world are about. I want to close with just this really simple kind of prayer of faith as John is calling us to believe. I'm going to call the band to come back up. We're going to close here, go into a time of communion, and close with a couple songs, and we're we're done here. Um, But as John calls us to belief in Jesus, I want to have us as a church just kind of end with a very just kind of simple prayer of faith. And we find this prayer in Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus, he's coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and there's this kind of theological dispute that's breaking out between the Pharisees or the religious leaders and the disciples of Jesus. And kind of in the midst of this scene, there is this boy who has a demon in him, and they can't seem to get the demon out of this boy. And Jesus kind of shows up on this scene. So there's this debate going back and forth. There's this father with his son. The son has a demon in him. And the Bible says when Jesus shows up that everybody's just amazed and in awe. And the father says to Jesus, look, not to be rude, um, but your disciples, they're not like you. They can't do what you can do because they've been trying and they can't get this demon out of my son. And Jesus, he says, uh, well, how long has this been going on with your boy? And the father says, since he was very young. And uh, this demon has tried to destroy my son for years and years, his whole life. He's tried to throw him into the fire to burn him. He's tried to throw him into the water to drown him. He's tried to destroy my son, and I'm desperate. And he, this father says, you know, if if you could do something about it. And Jesus says, Oh yeah, you unbelieving, unbelieving generation. He says, if if I can do something. And Jesus makes this statement. He says, if you believe, nothing will be impossible for you. And the Father says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe you can but help my unbelief. And with that, Jesus drives out the demon. And as John is calling us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, I think this is a prayer that we can all pray. Because I know that so many of us, myself included, we do believe, but we want to believe more. And the deepest part of us, there's this cry that says, I do believe but help my unbelief. And I believe that when we pray that, Jesus responds and he acts. Because the only way for us to move from unbelief to belief is because of him and through him. And so as a church, I just want us to pray this prayer as we start this journey through the book of John. Help my unbelief. God, in this time right now, in the season of doubt or the season of fear, help my unbelief in this season of selfishness, when I find myself in these stupid internet debates over masks or politics or theories or opinions, help my unbelief and help me talk about you, Jesus. Help my my hope be found in you, my satisfaction be found in you. I want to believe that Jesus is the son of God. I want to have the fullness of life in your name, church. Do you want that? Are you hungry for that? because the invitation to those who are hungry is to eat and to drink and to be satisfied. The invitation is to give your life to Jesus. And if whether you're watching online or whether you're here in this room and you've never had that moment where you've believed that Jesus is the Son of God and you've found new life in Him, that there's been a new creation in your heart, and your life because of what He has done today could be a day of salvation for you. I want to encourage you to pay attention to what God might be saying to you right now. For those of us um, who struggle with unbelief, today could be a day of repentance where we renounce our complacency or our cynicism or our pride or our self-centeredness, the places we've placed our belief that God would change and convict and turn us away from those things towards him. Every week here, we have a moment of communion And uh, you should have those elements either on your chair, maybe under your chair, and at home, whatever you're using for these elements. There's two things. There's the bread and there's the cup. And communion is a moment of confession um, that is not just rooted in these particular elements, the bread and the cup, but is rooted in what they point us to, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, the the Messiah, the Son of God. And they point us to the life and the death and the resurrection of this Jesus Christ, the sent one who rescues and rules and reigns and who will return. The bread reminds us of his body, the cup his blood. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song and the refrain in that song says this, that we believe that God is Jesus. We believe that he is Lord. We believe that he has saved us from sin and death once and for all. And if that's your confession here this morning or at home, take the bread and eat in remembrance and in celebration of him. The cup also reminds us of the perfect life, perfect death, perfect sacrifice, perfect submission and perfect obedience for Jesus who died a death in our place so that we might be put back together with God for eternity if that's your confession, if you hold that to be true, drink in remembrance and celebration of him. Now we stand and sing um, to praise the God who has given his life for us because we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. Let's stand and sing together.